What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Core Consults RX podcast. And today we have a guest pharmacist tuning in all the way from Canada. So we are, this is our first international guest, right? I guess so. Nina, welcome to the show. This is awesome. Thank you. So I appreciate you. Uh, you reached out to us and um, had uh, have a kind of a unique, um, I guess, role as a pharmacist for in uh, your area. So um, we wanted to kind of have you on um, to kind of talk through that, change things up a little bit from our normal, super boring me and Cole just talking, and uh, just kind of see you know a little bit different um, aspect of you know thinking about things along the lines of formulary and kind of incorporating some literature evaluation things like that. So we got a lot we're going to talk about today, but. First, uh, Nina, give us a little bit of background. So, you know, your origin story as far as how you became a pharmacist, you know, what led you that path and how, how did everything go starting back in like school? <laughs> so I, I graduated from pharmacy school a, a while ago now. It's not telling Cole, like I graduated in, in 2000. So my gosh, 21 years ago. Um, <laughs> and um, after graduating from pharmacy school, I worked as a hospital pharmacist for five years. So I did like you know, hospital inpatient stuff. I worked in general medicine. I worked in neurosurgery. I worked in critical care and that kind of kept me going for five years. And then I thought, hmm, maybe I want to change things up a little bit, you know, maybe don't want a life of responsibility, having to get up every morning and look after patients, want to be able to sleep in till 10 a.m. and eat cereal for dinner. No, <laughs> um, That sounds great to me. I know, I know. <laughs> cereal and ramen for dinner. I mean, what could be better, right? That's Did, what I do every day. Didn't we have a whole conversation about that? We just had a conversation about ramen noodles for like 10 minutes off topic. No, uh, we did. The other day. That's because <laughs> that's I eat them. I eat them on a regular basis. That's why. And doesn't one of you eat them dry or something? Oh, that's oh, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was me. Oh, that was See, you heard. I was saying never ate them dry. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently I, I, yeah, I got a lot of heat for that. What the heck? <laughs> Um, clearly stuck in my memory. I'm like, hmm, that's the first time I've heard someone do that. That's, yeah. Um, see, that's why. Because that's it. the first time anybody's ever done it. What? Cole's <laughs> super rude. Sorry. <laughs> Hey, uh, sorry. Um, what do you mean? Cut so, you off? No, no. Awesome. We got back on the ramen train. I thought it was such an interesting conversation <laughs> from one of the one of the previous podcasts. No, I, I wanted to, um, you know, do more kind of health services research policy kind of work. So I went to grad school and I got a master's and I loved it so much. I got a PhD um, in health economics and health services research, and that kind of took me um, on the consulting path for a little while. And then I moved to the UK actually, and um, I worked in London at NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence in the UK, which is really like a public decision-making body, which really um, integrates clinical and economic um, evidence and, and issues recommendations, like national recommendations about, um, about reimbursement and, and funding of, of drugs. So it really um, led me to, into the kind of formulary management piece of it. And then when I ended up uh, back in, in Toronto, my hometown where I am now, um, I, I resumed my cons consulting practice, really just helping public and private decision makers um, you know, manage their formularies and and not just that, but establish criteria for um, really economic evaluations and and integrating evidence into their decision making processes. So, um, so that's my story, and that's where I'm at. And um, to keep up with my um, clinical pharmacy knowledge, which <laughs> which I feel is waning as the years go by, I stumbled upon Core Consult RX, and I thought, wow, this is so cool. I want to be on this show. And so we, I landed here. We appreciate it. Um, it, it. We actually were looking not too long ago. I think we have like around six or 7,000 listeners in Canada right now. Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty cool. We've, we've talked to a few pharmacists that have reached out over email and stuff like that. You're the first one officially on the show, um, but it, we, we definitely, oh uh, definitely appreciate our uh, Canadian listeners. I think for they're sure. the top non-US. Yeah. Right. I, I think, think so. so. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's uh, awesome. It's that's such a privilege to be here. Thank you for having me. No, I don't know how much of a privilege it is, but <laughs> we should be thanking you for taking the time to be on this nonsense. But um, no, it's really cool to have you. So um, as of, you know, the last 20 years, like you were saying, like, how do you feel like things have shifted? Like, since you've seen kind of stuff, you know, before we were practicing, obviously, how has things shifted and changed? What, what, have, what kind of big changes have you noticed as a pharmacist on the inside of that? Yeah, so there's really been um, a couple of changes. The first is really the move towards clinical care. When when I graduated, we were really just on the cusp of um, 
you know, clinical pharmacy services as part of routine care. And I found that as, you know, um, as I practiced, um, pharmacists became more and more engaged in clinical decision making and really became partners in, in managing care, not just, um, uh, you know, in a drug dispensing kind of function. So that's really been exciting. And, um, and to that end, I was really lucky when I was doing my PhD, um, the director, the director at the hospital where I was doing it was, was really lovely and um, got me a job working once a week in a rheumatology clinic. So that was fantastic. I got to keep up my clinical skills. And that really gave me a window into what I would say is my second big insight um, into how pharmacies evolved over the last 20 years. And that's really um, specialty pharmacy therapy and specialty drugs like those really did not exist when I first started practicing it's really been in the past 10 years that that um, type of therapy has taken has, has really really um, taken front and center um, and it's it's really changed the practice of pharmacy clinically and it's also really changed the world of health economics with these um, you know complex um, expensive therapies you know how, how do we manage them from a clinical point of view and how do we manage them from an economic point Point of view and how do we um, you know how do we integrate those those two types of evidence and that's that's really sort of um, the intersection of, of the clinical and the economic evidence is really what I do in my consulting practice right now so so it's it's, it's really um, really quite exciting and has really followed the trajectory of change in, in pharmacy practice over the last two decades no that's cool yeah it is kind of insane to see the cost on some of these medications and like how that plays into just man obviously we're there some of them are very we're very lucky that they exist, um, but it does definitely throw a wrench when we talk about how you know payers are going to be getting people these medications. Yeah, I guess on um, – so I, I deal with a lot of the expensive ones too. And on my end, when I'm trying to give them to patients, I'm always you know just of the feeling that, oh, everything should be approved. Just, just pay it so they can have the money. But I guess your job would be to kind of um, – I guess you're consulting, but to create evidence-based guidelines for – what they're going to cover and like what the guidelines for them to cover them are, I guess, is that what you're doing with formulary management and recommendations? Yeah. So there's kind of sort of two levels. One is kind of what, um, what are the guidelines for, for evidence generation, right? And, and kind of having the pharmacy health economics um, bent to it. I, I sort of focus on, you know, what kind of guidelines should there be for economic evaluation of therapies? What kind of, um, you know, criteria should we use when we're looking at the cost effectiveness of a therapy? Um, yeah. And then there's, there's um, you know, that the, the the clinical piece that's integrated into that. So yeah, so yeah, definitely. And then the individual kind of listing decisions, right? Once we've established what kind of evidence do we need, when we review this evidence, you know, how do we make a decision about listing something, not listing it, applying a certain prior auth restriction on it, or applying um, criteria around step therapy, and what is kind of um, the most evidence-based, fair, equitable way to go about that is, is really, I think, um, I think the question, and it's, it, it's you know, get, it, it gets hard when you're talking about therapies that cost multiple six figures a year sometimes. Yeah. So, you know, you kind of gave us a little bit of an outline um, ahead of time, just sort of, you know, how you wanted to talk about things. And because um, this is a definitely an area that Cole and I are not uh, even amateurs in. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think talking, you know, starting from the top with formulary, like, what do you want to kind of start this conversation and kind of break all this down? Because it seems like it could be a pretty complex system. So for us beginners, how, where are we starting? Yeah, so I thought maybe we could first um, tackle like, you know, what is a formulary and what is the purpose of a formulary and then maybe get into some kind, some discussion of um, criteria related to formulary listings and how to evaluate um, evidence, um, how formulary decision makers and even clinicians um, should evaluate evidence or just even a process to evaluate evidence and, and establish whether, um, whether a, ther a therapy is clinically effective and cost effective. So maybe I think that's that's probably um, a, a good approach. So I'm be starting kind of with what is a formulary, which is basically a, a, very simply a list of drugs that's covered by a healthcare payer, such as an insurer. And you know, really, the purpose of the a formulary is to uh, you know promote evidence-based use of of drug therapies, right? Make sure that we're promoting the use of clinically effective therapies and cost-effective therapies, because really the goal for the payer is to, um, you know, ensure that the patient receives the best care possible at the lowest cost possible. 
and coming back to the, you know, our, our, our discussion about very expensive specialty drugs, there's also the need nowadays to balance like the really part of the function of the uh, formulary is to balance um, sort of the competing objectives of, of cost containment with what you said, um, Cole, you know, really providing access to therapeutic choice when, when necessary and when appropriate, right? So that's kind of, kind of the second function of a formulary. And in the past, I mean, formularies were kind of fell into two categories. There were open formularies, which were formularies that basically listed all drugs that were approved by a regulator. So, so all drugs were, uh, um, approved by the FDA would, would be available on an open formulary, whereas a closed formulary would have some, some exclusions on, on drugs. So some of the drugs wouldn't be listed. But given the environment we're currently dealing with, the open formulary has basically <laughs> gone the way of the dodo. <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore. Um, basically, all formularies um, are closed formularies or, or managed formularies is sometimes the other term that's, that's used to describe formularies that have restrictions. Um, also, to a note that most formularies that are closed formularies do have processes for applying for exemptions for access to non-formulary items. Um, uh, you know, under exceptional circumstances. So, so as far as kind of making those decisions, especially when you have drugs that are in the same class and maybe there's subtleties around their data and maybe debate around which one may be better, which one may not. Um, so how, how do you decide on preference or when you're consulting, how do you decide on preference towards one versus another? I'm sure there's costs involved and there's the evidence involved and whatnot, but how, how do you go about making those decisions? Yeah, so I think the first the first thing we look at is the clinical evidence. Is there anything to differentiate one from the other first in terms of efficacy or effectiveness, right? Has a clinical trial shown any difference between, you know, if there's three agents in a particular class, has, you know, is there a clinical trial that's, that's shown um, any difference between the agents? I think the second factor would be safety considerations is, is, is one, you know, um, associated with, um, fewer or a great fewer or greater um, adverse events. Um, I think the other um, factor before we even get to cost is is um, issues around adherence and acceptability to patients, right? Is there one that's kind of easier to use um, as opposed to another? You know, if we're talking about um, a specialty drug, is there one that, you know, maybe is dosed once weekly as opposed to um, twice a week, that might be a little bit easier and more acceptable to a patient. Um, just things like that. And then again, um, cost considerations, right? Um, um, cost of therapy and all things being equal, we would select the therapy with the lowest cost. But again, there, there's, you know, issues, uh, other issues, uh, other issues that we consider. And, and it's really, right. um, on a case by case basis, right? There, there isn't a set algorithm um, that we can, you know, kind of tick off every time. But, but those are some of the criteria that we that we use. Yeah. Gotcha. So, yeah. the the first, my first, I guess the example that came to my head. Um, this is by no means specialty medication, but like with the GLP ones, for example, um, for diabetes. Like I'll see, you know, the data shows that efficacy wise, is from an A one C standpoint, Victoza and Trulicity and and uh, Ozempic probably have this the best. A1C lowering. The other ones have been shown, you know, not to have quite as good. Um, and then the cardiovascular data also is better with those three compared to the others that don't have any. So, you know, in the case of those, if one is significantly cheaper though, and it doesn't have the same efficacy, it doesn't have the same, uh, you know, certain other side benefits, if you will. Um, I still imagine that there's the argument on the business side of things or, or the payer side of things, it's like, well, it's not that much of a difference in A1C lowering, even though it's statistical. So like what's, what's the way that's typically used? Is there like a me standard measure as far as like whether you're using like clinical significance versus um, statistical significance, or is that just where they're looking at you for answers on how relevant those changes are? Yeah, so there's there's quite a few things. That's a really great question because there's quite a few things to unpack there. Um, so one of the first things that sort of came to mind when you mentioned that is is um, the A1C versus the cardiovascular outcome. So there we're talking about like surrogate outcomes versus real clinical outcomes. Um, and I think um, I, I really think that 
therapies that have shown benefit with respect to clinical outcomes are really what you should go with. Um, and it's funny that you bring that up because one of the points um, sort of on the, that I'd kind of written out for, for discussing was, you know, how do you evaluate therapies that are, um, that, you know, that, that were tested in clinical trials that only report on surrogate outcomes. So again, the A1C being a surrogate outcome, I think a decision maker would really look at something that had evidence with respect to cardiovascular outcomes, really, because in diabetes, right, I mean, the ultimate goal of therapy is to prevent micro and macrovascular complications, right? Um, so drugs that have demonstrated that, I think, uh, you know, would be clinically superior. And at that point, um, you know, in the work I've done, the cost consideration really wouldn't come into play versus the other agents. Now, between those three agents, if they all had similar um, efficacy with respect to clinical outcomes, similar, you know, um, adverse events, we would then start looking at cost considerations. But I think the key there is, is first to um, really look at the clinical evidence um, as much as possible, select therapies um, that have evidence of, of clinical benefit, not just um, statistically significant benefit. Um, and so it was one of another one of my points was I, you know, if, if there are listeners out there, if there's members of the audience that are only going to take one thing away from this talk, I would say it's this, um, you know, a, a, a finding of statistical significance doesn't always translate into a finding of cl um, clinically meaningful benefit. So it's really important to kind of peel back the layers of um, of the onion, so to speak, and really um, try and establish whether a study has demonstrated clinically meaningful benefit. And we we kind of take even a step farther back than that. Um, you know, really the only reason we provide drug therapies or any medical therapies really to anyone is, is for two reasons, right? To improve their survival or to improve their quality of life. And we really want clinical data that's commensurate with that. We want clinical data to show that, um, you know, there's been an, a, a clinical improvement, you know, in terms of survival. So something like cardiovascular outcomes would really be, um, really be important in demonstrating that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Did I answer that question? Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. I think so. I'd want to ask you a question, but before I yeah. do, I do want to mention to the listeners, if you hear thunder and lightning in the background, it's, it's because it's thunder and there's literal tornadoes like dropping within 10 miles of us. I just got a notification that there's a warning on John and James Island, which means one actually touched down over there. Um, so that's not very far away. So hopefully we make it through the podcast. But anyways, that's what, <laughs> that's what I'm the hoping noise. this isn't going to be a one woman show. You have to take it over. Um, I want to ask you about uh, PAs before we, we delve more into the, the data and that sort of thing. This kind of might apply a little bit. So when you're deciding um, to attach a PA prior authorization to something, um, how do you come up with the criteria that they have to meet for that? If that makes sense, I guess that would, you know, that might apply to the clinical evidence and that sort of thing. But like, they need to try this and that drug before we'll pay for this, or they need to try and fail two things, or have this many, uh, I don't know, I'm thinking headache days, something migraines, or something like that, um, to attach to it uh, before it'll be covered, even if it's on formulary. Yeah, so that's a great question. And as much as possible, those prior auth requirements should be evidence-based. So they should be based on um, clinical trials or even observational studies with respect to how the therapies were, were used in those settings. So for example, I'll, I'll use a lot of rheumatology examples because that was sort of my, my last clinical experience. If we were, you know, we're kind of looking at prior auth criteria for TNF inhibitors, right? You know, we'd want to know that, um, you know, conventional DMARDs were tried first, a combination of conventional DMARDs were tried, um, that we had um, some quality of life uh, data or some, some data on, on functional, um, functional measures that the patient wasn't achieving those goals. Um, and, and that would all play into how we would establish the prior authorization criteria. So it's, it's really as much as possible based um, evidence-based on, on, on clinical trials and, and large observational studies. And when choosing to attach a PA to something, is that mostly based on cost or is it place in therapy? Like you know that two or three or four things need to be tried before this they got to this, so we're going to attach a PA to this to make sure that they've done that before we pay for it. Or is it a combination? Yeah, I think I think it's a combination. I think you can kind of divide PA into like um, sort of clinical criteria PA, where we really want them to match what's been done in studies, because you know that's that's the um, circumstance or that's the situation, the clinical the clinical uh, situation in which the drug has been tested. So so that's kind of um, you know 
clinical PA. And then there's kind of economic, and, and the, I, I guess it's even, not even so much economic PA, but uh, economic step therapy, right? Where we want um, plan members to try something that's cheaper first before we provide access to the most expensive therapy. And again, we want, um, you know, we want to make sure that it's not just an economic consideration, right? We want to make sure that even when, when those economic step therapy kind of um, criteria are, are established, um, you know, all plan members or nearly all plan members have a really an excellent chance or at least a reasonable chance of success with the initial therapy. You know, the, the, the purpose of step therapy shouldn't be um, cost avoidance. Right. It should be... Um, it, it should be promoting clinically effective and, and cost-effective therapy. Um, yeah. Right. No, that makes sense. That do, makes sense. Yeah. Do you ever see it go the other way to where patients, uh, or I'm sorry, not patients, but formularies um, and prior authorizations are established on, let's say, drugs that may even be cheaper, but they're not nearly as clinically effective? Like, this is a terrible example, but like, if you see a patient, you know, be it for like primary hypertension, they're getting a beta blocker first line, which is not indicated at all. Like, is there, are there, um, for the more, more expensive drugs than that, but like, there's things that they get put in place basically to protect patients from clinicians not being up to date with their information? You know, that's a really good question. And that would probably be very good, good, good criteria on what to base a prior auth, but I haven't really seen it. it it's the prior auths for the most part concern, um, expensive therapies. Um, so it's, it's, you know, we want to make sure that they're being used in the most clinically effective way. And we also want to make sure that they're being used in, in the most cost effective way. And I think it just becomes really administratively cumbersome, really burdensome. If you were to kind of put PAs on things like beta blockers or, you know, cheaper drugs, um, it just, I don't think for most um, payers really would be feasible because the amount of, um, you know, sort of clinical resources and, and, and administrative resources Resources that you would require to do something like that would really be um, would would really be so burdensome that that you know you, yeah. you really wouldn't be able to manage a, a formulary that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. The people who would have to process and review the PAs and that sort of thing. And as a clinician, if I was thinking on the other end, and though it might not be the best decision, if I felt like I didn't have the freedom, you know, to, to, choose, to, that. to choose that or something, that would be pretty frustrating. Even even if you know it's it's put in place with the best intentions. Yeah. That would be pretty frustrating. Yeah. yeah. If I had to justify that somebody had like a prior MI or something, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. you know, just as an, if I need to just use that as an example, but yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, uh, there would probably be issues about encroachment onto, you know, prescriber territory. Um, yeah. if, if we yeah. were kind of, um, you know, requiring PAs for things like that, but. So how, how does one like avoid bias in that then? Like when that decision-making, when it does come to the more expensive medications, I'll use Trulicity and Ozempic as an example. Like, I personally like Trulicity a lot better just because of the titration, and that's the one I use a lot. My patients have a lot of success with it. Ozempic, I always have a little bit harder time titrating, you know, up because you, you know, the pain, the pen has to change, all you know, this and the other. But when it comes to like the actual evidence, technically speaking, the Ozempic does have superior A1C lowering. And then again, like going back to what you said, is to me that's not clinically relevant in this case. But you could make an argument for that, um, that it's statistically significant, that it's superior, blah, blah. Um, so how, how would I, if I was evaluating that, how, is there safeguards in place to keep my bias of Trulicity out of the argument if I had to pick between the two for a formulary? Or could I just get them both approved? Yeah, I mean, in some cases, um, you, you know, many formularies would approve both. both Sometimes okay. they may have preferred um, agreements with manufacturers. I mean, those kind of things come into play. Um, again, as much as possible, you know, trying to take an evidence-based approach. And most formulary decisions are made by a pharmacy and therapeutics committee. So it's like, you know, um, a group of physicians, pharmacists, nurses, administrators, legal experts, sometimes health economists, you know, they, they really come together and review the evidence. And most of it um, is done by vote. So it's like, you know, the committee will vote, you know, do we prefer this agent over that agent? And what is the reason why? And, you know, obviously, like I said, there, there's, um, issues around, you know, agreements with manufacturers, et cetera, which may to some degree influence what is listed on a formulary and what is excluded from a formulary. But I, th I think it's um, the decision, the evidence 
is weighed and the evidence-based decision is, is really um, really a judgment, a collective judgment of the pharmacy and therapeutics committee. So I think it would be highly, um, it would be highly unlikely for like one individual to, you know, say I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm biased towards this drug and, and, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you've never seen Mike before in a yeah, meeting. I can make that, a scene. That's, that's, that's the thing. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind if yeah, I'm ever yeah. in a meeting. With yeah, them. <laughs> just zoom me, zoom me in. I'll take I'll take over from there. Um, no, but the, so as far as like what you mentioned about the manufacturers and like the deals that they or kickbacks or whatever that they may give the payers, because that I feel like at least here we have issues with that a lot. With like they're they're basically putting a an inferior drug based on all kinds of things, cardiovascular data, all that stuff, on yeah. formulary for the sole purpose of, hey, it's cheaper for us, who cares? And they have a deal that give them exclusive rights. Um, that drives me crazy when I see that here. So like, is there, how is that in your experience? How is that kind of shaped or been avoided in some cases? Yeah, I mean, I think in the US, that's that's a huge issue yeah. with, with the whole rebate system and um, formulary exclusions and deals between manufacturers and, and PDMs. Um, most of which, most of which I don't understand. Up here in Canada, we, we, I mean, we see it to some degree, but the system is a little bit more regulated, so we, we don't see it as much. But I think, I think it raises a very good point about the fact that some of these decisions are, in fact, not evidence based, and you know, they're based on 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 other criteria, and that really, um, you know, perhaps speaks to the need for system reform around, um, you know, transparency um, with respect to, you know. Clinical evidence, as well as um, transparency around costs, right? So it's not uh, simply, you know, having middlemen or middle parties such as you know PBMs making profits um, from from these kinds of decisions, but rather having truly evidence based formularies where, where there's transparency, um, you know, for the prescribers really. And this is one thing when you talk to prescribers, they say one of one of the biggest problems with navigating formularies is the communication and the lack of transparency around the decision making process around the criteria that were used to um, to to make a to make a listing decision and and the other huge issue for them is cost transparency um, just because um, there's there's such a link between out of pocket costs for patients and the risk of non adherence and when physicians don't have that information I, th I think they find it really really frustrating, and when you when you talk to them they they say they want to um, they want to use high value therapies but what's preventing them from doing it oftentimes is 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 this opacity this lack of transparency, um, so so that's that's an excellent point that that often often it's it's not transparent the way in which the decision was made and and, and even um, you know, the rationale for the decision. Yeah. So walk us through a little bit of like the analyzing of evidence uh, sort of path, you know, because that can get very confusing in and of itself. And, you know, it, we all have spent some time like looking at literature and all that, but, it, you know, yeah. unless you're a drug info person that really, really likes that kind of stuff, it can get to be a lot. So from a practical standpoint, when you're trying to kind of sift through that, you know, what type of evidence are you looking for? Um, kind of walk us through like, how that incorporates into your decision making? Yeah, so um, really, there's two types of studies with respect to establishing uh, efficacy or effectiveness um, that formulary decision makers will look at and can really divide it into controlled studies and observational or real world studies and might be worth taking a few minutes to walk through the different, um, you know, these two different types of studies. So controlled studies are really RCTs, randomized clinical trials where um, an investigator recruits participants based on inclusion exclusion criteria, um, often a very specific list of criteria determines um, what patients get in, um, selected for participation into a clinical trial. Um, the investigator then randomly assigns particip participants to groups. So this is really important that, you know, you get um, randomization um, of the patients in, in the different groups. So we can really, um, really um, ascertain with some degree of certainty cause and effect because of this randomization. You know, do, do the effects we see result from the drug treatment or not? Um, the uh, investigator assigns the intervention, and it's usually a double-blinded study, drug studies at least, meaning that the both the investigator and the um, participant are blinded. They're unaware of what arm they're in, whether they're in the intervention arm, the experimental treatment arm, or the comparator arm. And aside from the um, the experimental intervention, both both groups 
receive identical treatment or as much as possible, they receive identical treatment. And then we do an analysis of results based on a pre-specified um, outcome. So for example, with um, you know, a blood pressure lowering drug, we'd be interested in things like prevention of cardiovascular um, events between the groups. Um, and we, we wanna, you know, ideally we'd observe lower, uh, lower risk of cardiovascular events in the treatment group than in the comparator group. And really these types of studies establish efficacy of a drug. So um, just in terms of definitions, efficacy is, you know, it really relates to whether a drug works or provides benefit when it's used under ideal conditions. So when it's used in, exactly the patient population it's intended for, um, in exactly the way it's intended to be used, um, you know, under clinical trial conditions, you know, does it work? Does it provide benefit? And then we can look at real world or observational studies. And the most common types um, of studies that formulary decision makers or clinicians would, would um, use or, or in, the, in this category would be cohort studies or case control studies. So these are different from RCTs in that patients themselves or clinicians determine treatment assignment or exposure. So they're not randomized, a big difference um, in, in, in how treatment is assigned and the lack of randomization in observational studies. And these can be prospective, like a, an RCT. So we can decide we're going to do a cohort study, for example, and we're going to say all patients uh, in Cole's clinic starting from June 1st, you know, are going to be followed forward for a year. And we're going to, you know, look at whether they're on one um, epileptic drug compared to another and um, how that, how, you know, what are, what are their outcomes, or it can be done retrospectively. We can use data that's already been collected through a database and we, we say, okay, we're going to look at all patients who were on, um, you know, a certain drug from starting, uh, you know, say in 2010, and we're going to follow them forward for three years and, and look at what their outcomes were. You know, everybody who received Ramipril, um, you know, compared to everyone who received um, Metoprolol for um, treatment of, of heart failure, you know, uh, something like that. And we're going to follow them forward. So again, there's no blinding. So both the investigator and the participant are aware of what treatment they're getting. And the treatments may differ between the groups, not just with respect to the treatments we're interested in comparing. So again, um, you know, it, it, it's not controlled. It's, it's not a, a controlled setting. It's, it's, you know, everyday clinical practice. Um, and, you know, and observing what goes on in that setting. Um, and because of this, because of the lack of randomization and the lack of, um, you know, the controlled setting that you see with a clinical trial, these kind of um, studies are inherently um, subject to selection bias and confounding. So selection bias is really systematic um, differences between the two groups. So for example, I'll go back to a rheumatology example. Um, if you know, we know subcutaneous methotrexate is more effective than oral methotrexate. And so in my clinic where I was working, we would tend to select patients for subcutaneous methotrexate that we thought would have a high chance of treatment success, as I'm sure everyone does, right? When you see a patient, you're not gonna put them on a therapy um, that you don't think they're gonna have a high chance of success with, right? So if we had a patient who really was good like, challenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. See if this works for you. See if you yeah. can make this work. Um, so, for, so for example, um, you know, if we had a patient who was like highly motivated to control their disease, um, was adherent to their therapy with oral DMARDs, you know, understood the rationale for adding, you know, subcutaneous methotrexate, you know, we'd be like, hey, you know what, um, your disease has progressed, but you know, we think you'll do really well. We want to start you on subcutaneous methotrexate versus another patient who was maybe not particularly adherent to their therapy, isn't quite convinced that they need a third DMARD on board, expresses like, you know, anxiety, almost recoils in fear when we talk about self-injection of subcutaneous methotrexate, probably not going to put that patient on subcutaneous methotrexate. We're going to say, okay, well, you know what, we'll be happy if we can get you on oral methotrexate. So that's where we get into like selection bias, right? The issue becomes that if we observe those two patients, we're not really sure how much of the outcome we observe is due to the subcutaneous versus the oral methotrexate versus some of the other patient characteristics, right? Like the patient we've put on subcutaneous methotrexate has, you know, um, probably um, falls into the category of like healthy adherers or healthy users, right? Highly motivated, um, takes good care of their health, probably, you know, is adherent to their drugs and engages in other lifestyle um, type of um, 
behaviors that promote good health, right? Eats healthy, exercises, et cetera, versus the other patient, you know, not overly motivated with respect to their disease management, maybe doesn't engage in so many of those lifestyle behaviors. And so um, drawing conclusions about cause and effect becomes a little bit more complicated in the context of an observational study just because, um, just because of that selection bias. Whereas if we contract that to a randomized uh, clinical trial, we would randomly assign those patients to either subcutaneous or oral methotrexate. So on average, we would get some healthy users in the sub-Q methotrexate group, some healthy users in the PO group, and some kind of not so healthy users in the sub-Q group, and um, some not so healthy users in the PO group. So it, you know, it, it evens out on average, which allows us to do, draw much firmer conclusions about the effects that we observe and whether they're due to the treatment or not. Right. Yeah. So what about cost effective analysis? Like how, cause that's the part that I think a lot of, uh, of us that do look at literature and stuff like that, that's what we're less clear about. Cause that's, we, sometimes they do like, I don't know, specific studies on that and stuff. But if you're, if you're, if you have it, then yeah. It I, sounds like too, too much, too close to economics for most of us. <laughs> so we end up going, no, 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 we'll leave that alone. And we just look at the clinical stuff. So can you talk us through a little bit about that and how that's applied? Yeah, so um, cost effectiveness is really a value based um, assessment of drugs. So when, when um, researchers undertake cost effectiveness, they want to know what is the additional benefit of this drug? And what am I paying for the additional benefit? And um, in some jurisdictions, like in Canada and Western Europe, there's really been um, an interest in this by decision makers to, to really make value based decisions. It's, it's been a little bit slow to catch on um, in the US. But I think we're starting to get more interest in cost effectiveness, again, because of what we talked about earlier, where we had these specialty drugs that are really so expensive. And we, we you know, we, we want to know, are, are, what are we paying and what are we getting in return? So um, I can get pretty technical about cost effectiveness, but I'll try and keep it sort of, um, sort of a little bit more um, a, a little simpler, a little easier to understand. So basically, as as as, um, as, as one of my colleagues in the industry says, you know, we we're not going to pay. It, it comes down to this, really. We're not going to pay more money for like I'm not going to pay more money for a car that works less well than the car I currently have, right? And that's kind of the, the you, know, <laughs> you know, I think most people would agree on that, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think um, formulary decision makers are interested in drugs that are more effective and that come with, with some value, right? Like what, what are we interested in? How much more are we willing to tolerate in terms of costs with respect to what we're getting? So when we undertake formal cost effectiveness analyses, we, um, we generate results in terms of incremental cost effectiveness ratios. So what we do is we compare two drugs and we say, okay, what is the um, difference in benefit. And this is where we use a metric called quality adjusted life years, which I'm sure most, I don't know how, how yeah. commonly they're used. Yeah. And so basically it's, it's a metric that is a summary measure of, um, survival combined with quality of life. So, you know, one number that, that gives us that, that adjusts survival, um, for quality of life. And we say, you know, what, what is the difference in quality adjusted life years between say drug A and drug B? And what is the co cost difference between drug A and drug B? And here it's important to note that we're not just looking at cost, like acquisition cost difference. We're looking at, um, total cost difference. So again, going back to a rheumatology example, we, we would like construct a model where we say, what is the total cost of a um, um, TNF alpha inhibitor, um, you know, compared to methotrexate, com compared to conventional DMARD therapy. And we would run that through what we call a decision analytic model and generate this estimate of cost effectiveness where we have a cost. Um, so it would generate a result something like something like $67,000 per quality adjusted life year. And so what that allows the formulary decision maker to do is to compare therapies um, between different disease states. We would generate a metric like that for a TNF-alpha inhibitor. We would also generate it for an antihypertensive drug. And then we would compare the two values. And that allows us to trade off the value. We, you know, what drug is, is more cost-effective 
um, based on the incremental cost effectiveness ratio. And again, you know, understanding that that's not the only criteria that a decision maker would use when they're um, making a decision about whether to list a drug or not list a drug, but that could factor into whether they decide to list a drug, whether they decide to not list it, whether they decide to um, um, institute some kind of prior authorization requirements or step therapy criteria. Um, and again, the focus there is on value. Whereas I think um, sometimes the focus um, on the part of formulary decision makers is, is on cost rather than value. And I think, I think the thinking now is that there needs to be a paradigm shift from focus on costs to focus on value, right? Because you can get very expensive therapies, for example, hep C therapies that are, are really quite expensive, but but. Most payers consider them to provide very good value, right? Because, you know, they're, they're really blockbuster therapies that provide therapeutic um, outcomes. You know, we're able to cure, what, 90% of hep C yeah. cases, something like that. Um, it's even higher. It's crazy. Yeah, Compared 90 like interferon and what we used to yeah. have. Yeah, exactly. And so again, looking at the value um, allows us to make therapeutically sound decisions, right? Because I mean, on a cost basis only, if those kind of drugs were subject to step therapy requirements, that's probably not really an optimal decision because there's no comparable therapy, right? Um, whereas on the other hand, if you look at something like Aduhelm, which has caused a lot of controversy from the get-go with um, you know, FDA approval and whether it actually demonstrated efficacy or not and concerns about safety outcomes. I think there's some pairs in the US that have uh, subjected to um, prior authorization requirements where a clinician has to you know, certify that it's medically necessary for a patient versus others that have taken a more value-based approach and said, hey, you know what, we're we're not convinced that there's any um, additional efficacy. We're concerned about, um, you know, safety outcomes. We're, we're not going to list it, and we're, we're not going to pay for it. So again, um, sort of, you know, depending on whether there's a a, a a cost sort of paradigm or a value based paradigm to decision making, can really affect how um, can really affect formulary placement of some of these agents. Yeah, and I, I feel like we've seen a, a bit of a shift in the last, I don't know, decade since I've been dealing with a little bit toward more towards value-based, even though I have my frustrations with insurance companies and whatnot. I think there has been more of a shift, and it's it's a little less short-sighted, I guess, because if it, previously, if you were only focused on the cost of this drug that I'm giving you now and not on long-term outcomes, I mean, better long-term outcomes, less hospitalizations, that's all going to save the insurance company money in the long run and add quality adjusted life years, like you mentioned, uh, uh, to patients' lives. So I think it's a positive thing. For anybody interested, yeah. I think we've um, progressed to hail outside. Is, <laughs> is that what we're hearing? I like how you're giving us the play-by-play. Yeah, so uh, we've moved on to hail. I'm hearing more gusting. <laughs> gus uh, what's the word? More wind. Gus gusting? Gus. Gusting. More gusting of wind. I don't know if this um, is. Yeah, Never so... Mind. So it's it's progressing. AJ is terrified in the corner. <laughs> he's he's huddling. I am. I, I he's in the feet. Uh, he's in the fetal position. Questions as far as kind of what to expect. I Where's know the, the AJ US. Cam? Oh yeah, hold I on. got AJ his own camera, folks. He's not even using yeah, it the, now. The, the AJ cam. There, there we go. Goes. Thank in you. In the US, we kind of. I mean, it, it just seems shameless that a lot of the health plans that we have uh, do not take any sort of comparable therapies into consideration. I know. In the current capacity that I work at, uh, we go with a lot of the rheumatologic uh, specialty meds. And so uh, doing those PAs, you'll see that insurance will say, hey, we want to try Zelgens first before anything, you know, an oral jack inhibitor. It's pretty cheap. But, you know, versus Simzia versus Symponi, we've got all these options and, and things for patients. And being a young pharmacy intern, kind of just getting into everything that is therapy and, and uh, kind of like evidence-based medicine, it seems almost kind of like a no-brainer, like, hey, why wouldn't we go with the best medicine with the best outcomes and, you know, doing what's best for the patients and then just learning. I guess I, I haven't, you know, been in the game since 2000. I haven't seen the progression. Yeah, yeah, barely, barely alive. <laughs> I haven't seen the I'm progression. Getting, I'm getting to point where you, people, uh, people born the year I graduated are now practicing pharmacy. I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't see that progression from then to now, so I guess it – it seems frustrating to me, but I can imagine it. It just seems like a lot of like progress and growth as far as, you know, the, the changes in, in the paradigm for you guys. Yeah, I mean, there have there there've really been a ton of change. And I think it's really um, kind of shifted the paradigm, you know, towards a value-based 
paradigm as opposed to a cost-based paradigm. And um, most, uh, many countries um, such as Canada, Western Europe have, you know, publicly funded, um, you know, decision-making bodies that help help make these decisions. The U.S. doesn't, but it does have the not-for-profit um, Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. They call themselves ICER and a, 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 a clever play on words because they do cost-effectiveness um, work. And, and they're really, I think, shifting the, um, you know, helping to shift that paradigm and really helping to focus the discussion on um, a value-based decision-making rather than a focus on, on costs. And I think they're, they're really doing some important work there that's, I think, speaking to this idea of looking at, at total costs, right? It's like, I, I say to my husband, like, um, you know, it's the Mac versus PC debate, right? I'm, I'm connecting with you on an 11-year-old Mac. And I know when I told my husband how much I paid for it 11 years ago, he nearly fell on the floor. But, you know, he's been through four PCs and I'm still using the same Mac. See, it's not your fault that he's given inf inferior technology, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Because right. I, I didn't even know it was a debate anymore. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's but awesome. That, yeah, no, I think I think that's really what it comes down to, and I think there's, um, I think there's positive change in, in in that direction. Yeah, yeah, I think we definitely still have a way to go. But on the bright side, you know, we did give the world things like Instagram, so you're welcome for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure we. I'm pretty sure the U.S. invented. Was Instagram. that the U.S.? Probably. I hope so. We're assuming not. that, but we probably have no idea. Yeah, okay, see, there, there you go. go. AJ Meta. It, it, it certainly didn't come from Canada, oh. so. It was the Bergman. Yeah. Okay. No, he bought it. Yeah, he, I thought he they owns just it now. It. It's, it's because AJ, of we all know somebody else made it. AJ, you're supposed to be the young guns. What are you doing over it's there? It's like Oculus. They just bought Oculus. Yeah. It's you know, too. AJ's fired. It's okay. It's too. Um, sorry, Nina. <laughs> the, uh, see, this is what happens. Um, so what, what do you want to kind of talk now as far as um, – you know, this whole process, you know, we kind of talked through some of the the data and literature that we can utilize, some of the um, statistics, analysis, all that good stuff. Um, what do we want to talk about as far as like access or anything like that, as far as access to these, some of these medications, um, whether it's in kind of... Like going... how to make sure everything is fair, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's a that's a really good point. So ICER again, not uh, ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review has um, put out a, a good paper on um, a cornerstones of fair access to um, medications. This might be worth spending a few minutes discussing, and this really speaks to the equity component of a formulary decision making. Really making sure that every plan member has, you know, the best chance of achieving. Um, treatment success. So they've kind of um, looked at five domains with respect to um, equity and access. And the first one is cost sharing. So really, um, they've said that the purpose of cost sharing is to incentivize the use of um, appropriate high value treatments. And it really shouldn't be used as a mechanism to shift costs from the payer to the patients. Um, and it shouldn't serve as a barrier for um, access to um, medically necessary therapy. We know there's robust evidence, um, and I think we've all seen it in our clinical practice, um, demonstrating that as out-of-pocket costs increase, the risk of adherence, the risk of non-adherence, excuse me, increases. So, you know, we should really be mindful of that and, and really not, um, not institute cost sharing such that it, it, such that it's a barrier to, um, access to coverage. The next domain they talk about is, is timely coverage. So when we talk about all these, you know, um, evidence-based decisions and cost-effectiveness analysis and all this, it takes time to do all this stuff, right? Like it takes time to generate evidence, to review the evidence, to, you know, generate economic data or review economic data. And so, um, you know, they just point out that this should be done in as timely a manner as possible. And, you know, with, with life-saving drugs for, you know, um, uh, life-threatening conditions for which there's no other treatment options. We should even get this process going before FD before we get FDA approval, right? While the drug is still in the pipeline, we should get this going. Um, and the time to develop these prior authorization protocols should be as expeditious as possible. So no gratuitous delays, right? It shouldn't you be used, you know, as an indirect way to delay paying uh, uh, for a therapy, right? Um, in terms of clinical eligibility criteria, so in terms of the criteria, 
um, that which is their third domain, they say that prior auths should only be used to prevent inappropriate use of treatments or to manage costs of expensive drugs, right? There, again, this I think came back to the um, discussion we had before about administrative burdens, right? It shouldn't be administratively burdensome to um, go through this process, um, you know, sort of for, for every drug. And it shouldn't, um, and the criteria really shouldn't extend beyond eligibility criteria for um, for a clinical trial or the FDA label really so the, so the so the criteria should should match um, the clinical trial inclusion criteria and again to be aware of arbitrary cutoffs right so there may be an arbitrary cutoff in a clinical trial saying you know um, patients over 65 were excluded probably not fair to say that a 68 year old patient who meets all other criteria shouldn't get the drug so you know just kind of fairness in that um, decision-making process. And they also interestingly point out some um, issues around structural racism and bias in clinical trials, you know, understanding that typically there's, uh, there, there may be groups of patients who are either underrepresented or who don't have um, access to clinical trials or, or are really excluded from participation in clinical trials. And, you know, recognizing the harms of that and recognizing that um, though patients that fall, plan members that fall into those groups also need access to the, to these therapies. Um, and, and so to be sort of mindful with respect to establishing clinical um, eligibility criteria related to those issues. Um, yeah, it is, again, it is interesting how like, you know, so many of our clinical trials, we get this data and they're like, well, we know it applies to white dudes. So let's just go ahead and uh, just spread out to everybody <laughs> so and that can definitely throw in you know it's i feel like it's key there's been slight movement towards getting a more yeah. robust patient population but still got a long way to go yeah i think they've got a long way to go and that's really one of the things um that's important to note about clinical trials i think the big limitation of clinical trials is really generalizability right um you know does the population in which, um, you know, the study was done, does that really reflect the population, the larger population in which the drug is going to be used? And I think oftentimes the answer is, is no. Um, and, you know, so, so that, that, that's really a big issue, right? So do, do we, uh, you know, how, how, how do we deal with that issue? Do yeah. we try and, you know, um, expand the eligibility pool for cl clinical trials? Do we try and narrow down the, the individuals in whom we eventually, um, use the drug, I, th I think that's, that's really a big issue. And this, again, you know, that's, it's an excellent point, because it really comes down to this, this issue of efficacy versus effectiveness, right? Like efficacy, how does it work? How does a drug work in the clinical trial setting versus effectiveness? How does it work in the real world setting and kind of the messiness of the real world and, you know, an uncontrolled setting where mm -hmm. individuals don't necessarily, um, would not necessarily have qualified for those clinical trials. And I think what we find most often is that um, a drug's efficacy, uh, sorry, a drug's effectiveness is lower than its efficacy. So it tends to work less well in the real world setting than in a clinical trial setting for some of those um, reasons we talked about. And again, you know, really important for formulary decision makers to be aware of that, um, you know, to, to, you know, not have unreasonable expectations about um, the health benefits they expect to see in plan members, you know, based on what happened in, in clinical trials, and as well, you know, being aware of the, the, the equity side in, in, in terms of access, right, not, not solely restricting access, um, you know, to uh, the 45 year old white, white men who, who made yeah. up the bulk of the clinical trial. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, and yes. it, what's interesting too, is, uh, I think this is a good point for like students and things that are first like starting to look at literature. Um, I feel like there's a tendency, especially, and I was here too, when I was in school, but I remember there's a tendency when you start learning some of these like study names and landmark trials and like, you've got those in your back pocket now. So you finally know how, why you're making these recommendations. It's very easy to forget that just because you know the outcome of a study or what was studied, you got to think about the inclusion criteria, the exclusion criteria, and does that apply to the patient sitting in front of you? Um, you know, not just along the lines of you know race or you know any of those other demographics, but also comorbidities and um, other things that maybe would have excluded them in the study. And the, can you really use that data to that patient or extrapolate that data? I think that's something that was like an aha moment for me, like as I was you know, right after school and was kind of looking through a lot of this stuff, it really kind of stuck out for me anyway. Um, that's not always so cut and dry of like, oh yeah, this study looked at this, this. Okay, cool. Everyone falls in that category. Well, did they include that patients with diabetes? Did they not? You know, that can yeah, throw exactly. a wrench. And 
absolutely there's issues around the inclusion exclusion criteria and I, find, I think there's also real issues around a controlled setting versus an uncontrolled setting right like the messiness of the real world right in a clinical trial you know they have tons of resources they follow everybody up everybody's monitored as they're supposed to be everybody has their blood work done when they're supposed to we know that doesn't happen right all the time in the real world setting right yeah. patients yeah. miss appointments they forget to get their blood work done they you know it, it's a much sort of um messier setting with a lot more uh, complications and and you know that may also be contributing to why we don't necessarily um uh see the same results results in the clinical trial setting and, and coming back to my my age okay so just before i graduated from pharmacy school there was a trial which I'm, I'm sure, I'm, I'm fairly certain you haven't heard about the RAILS trial, spironolactic. Oh, yeah, the heart failure, of, of yeah. course. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. See, that, that trial is still still big news, right? Oh, yeah. So that really was um, a clinical trial. That was like, that really changed the management of heart failure. I know when I graduated from school, um, we thought of spironolactone as like a, a silver bullet in terms of the management of heart failure based on this, this one large clinical trial, really, that, that demonstrated, um, you know, real improvements in morbidity, mortality in, in, in heart failure patients. A few years later, um, you know, we, we found that a lot of these patients who were being given spironolactone were um, experiencing adverse effects related to hyperkalemia. If I'm not mistaken, there were even deaths related to hyperkalemia. So again, speaking to this issue about generalizability, right? Were, were we using it in the same patients that it was used in in the RAILS trial? Were we, you know, um, monitoring them and following up with them in the same way that they were followed in monitored up in the rails trend? I think the answer was no, which is why we were seeing some of these adverse um, outcomes. You know, again, a, a bit of a cautionary tale about, you know, um, sort of on the basis of one clinical trial, uh, assuming that uh, that, you, that you're going to be able to, you know, replicate those results in, in the real world setting and, and that uh, a, a particular therapy does, in fact, represent a so-called silver bullet. Um, so that was really kind of eye-opening and, and interesting for me. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think there'll ever will be a silver, a true silver bullet. I think yes. I think people are just too diverse and too many other confounding factors. It's just not gonna. No one therapy is ever gonna just be able to take care of everybody. It's just no way. No, no, no. and I think that's I think that's just a really important point because I think sometimes we get very excited when we see these clinical trial results. We think, oh my gosh, you know, this is. Um, you know, this is going to put us leaps and bounds ahead. Um, and, and sometimes so, so sometimes that's not the case when, yeah. when we get it out into the real world. I will say, though, um, besides like rails and then like with a player and I'm with em emphasis and emphasis, like those are the other two in that same class. Outside of that, though, big drop off is when it comes to actual mortality data with heart failure. And we've had in Tresto, yes. everything else has just been hospitalizations mm -hmm. and, um, you know, that kind of thing. We So... It, yeah, definitely had a cautionary tale. But at the same time, it still was a pretty big deal when you look back now and realize that we've been trying for 20 years and still haven't really gotten much out uh, in the way of prolonging life. Yeah. 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 Sometimes it's, you know, two steps forward, one step back, or, yeah. you know, one step forward, two steps back. And that's sort of the nature of, um, of medical research, right? And speaking yeah. to that point, there's a really interesting article. Um, we can probably post the link for your readers if they're interested. Um, I think it's uh, by a Stanford researcher. I think it's called "Why Most Research Findings Are False." And again, he speaks to some of these kind of issues and the slow progress in, um, you know, me medical research and you know why why what we think is correct at one point in time may not be correct at another point in time, and all of the factors that that contribute to, um, you know. Um, it, it, you know, you know, contribute to results that that may not that may not um, be valid or may not transpire in in real world settings. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, AJ sent me the, just sent me the link. Uh, <laughs> why most published funny, uh, research findings are false. So I'll make sure I add that to the uh, show notes, everyone. AJ, look at you Hi. go. It's on it. That had to have been a fifteen AJ, second turnaround. Yeah, AJ, you're on fire. Okay, you're getting you're better. <laughs> That was awesome. I'm, I don't I'm think I could have gotten executing his. I've... It's these twenty-year-olds. They can really Google <laughs> stuff like you've I never know. seen. <laughs> really stepping up, um, but yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, any anything else? Kind of, I know we've kept you for a long time, but um, anything else? Kind of like in closing, as far as you know, that you want to kind of finish on, or anything in particular you want to say in closing? Yeah. yeah so I think. Um, 
I, I think one of the things, like this is not a clinical or a therapeutic thing, but this is just one of my insights from working as a pharmacist and, and working on the formulary decision-making side of it, um, is the importance of communication and the importance of access to information. I feel like um, in, in the formulary decision-making space, um, there just sometimes isn't, you know, I think we touched on it earlier in the show, there just isn't um, prescriber access to the information they need to a navigate these formularies and understand the rationale um, for these decisions and understand, um, you know, uh, or, or not, not even understand, but have access to transparent costing information. And I think really if um, payers want to, to, to kind of move this forward um, in terms of you know, really promoting evidence-based use of drugs. I think there's a ton of work to be done in terms of communication. And I think we have the technology to do it and we just need to harness the technology. If someone could find a solution to, you know, integrating like decision support software with, with clinical pathways um, or clinical workflow, I think that would be that would be really helpful. And I think just um, an increase in, in transparency. And I, th I think there are, there are a few companies, there are a few outfits that are, are moving to, to, to filling that gap. Some PBMs coming and really um, emphasizing the, the, um, the need for transparency in their decision-making processes. So I think we're moving towards there, but that, that's the feedback I get from, um, from, from prescribers. And, and I get that feedback too from, from decision-makers saying that, that, that they get that pushback um, from the folks like you guys on the clinical end of it, right? Just having access to more information would, would be a, would be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. They need an AJ to find data for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what they need. Just Google stuff real quick. Yeah. Don't yeah, tell exactly. everybody. Exactly. The drug info people are going nuts. Yeah, <laughs> Don't Google. Are you crazy? Mesh terms. Mesh terms. <laughs> or whatever they used to do. But um, yeah. So, but yeah. Yeah, that's just, awesome. I'll just, yeah, and I'll just leave you with my one final thing. If there's yeah, one thing no, you want no, to take away course. from this. Um, don't just assume that a statistically significant result link, uh, results in a clinically meaningful benefit. I know, I know, <laughs> I emphasize that point all the time. I was teaching a critical appraisal course at the university, and that was like my my takeaway. You know, re resist all temptation to simply look at the abstract and note a statistically significant result and assume that everything's good to go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Although I, the, the abstract is very tempting <laughs> yeah. for time. For it's time. so short and but quick and easy to read. I absolutely agree. No, gotta there's take a lot of that because. Because I used to do that, like when I was yeah. like early in clinical practice, you're like, oh, okay, this looks great. Perfect. Let's go. Key value yeah. point zero zero one. We're good. Yeah, yeah there good. it yeah. is. Now that's a very good point. I think uh, um, it's something that it's especially for really important like drugs and things like that. When it comes to choosing between therapies and whatnot, diving into the literature is very important. Um, and not just reading the yeah. abstract. Take the time, or at least read the summaries of the people who did take the time <laughs> and are going to be yeah. honest. <laughs> just approach it with a healthy skepticism. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very good policy for any thing in medicine is, you know, there's yeah. nothing stated just for the heck of it. I mean, there's always some sort of agenda. So um, kind of weeding through some of that is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, taking your time to do this. Um, Thank you for having me. No, of course. Um, I, I'm going to be honest with you. When I was hearing you explain, like, you know, quality adjusted life years and things like that, I was like, I'm pretty stupid, I think. <laughs> no, you're not. So, uh, no, that was awesome. Um, I appreciate it. And uh, is there, if somebody wanted to, like, get in touch with you or anything like that for more questions, do you have any, like, social media or emails or anything like that that you can? Or yeah, I can definitely. I, yep. Not I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. Yeah, Perfect. no, I'm on LinkedIn. Totally happy to connect with anyone who's interested in connecting. Um, and my email address is nina.lathia, N-I-N-A dot L-A-T-H-I-A at healthcaredecisionmaking.com. You can put that all in the show notes. Totally happy to connect with um, with anyone who's interested in doing work in this space or just interested in, in chatting further about it. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and thank you guys for listening. Um, I appreciate uh, the support as always. Um, if you have any questions for Cole or myself or AJ, um, emails will be in the show notes. Um, I don't know if AJ's is yet, but that's that's coming soon. Um, but there is, me and Cole's emails will be in the show notes. If you have uh, want to reach us on any of the social media platforms, you can do that as well. Um, and I do want to make sure I do not forget to give a big shout out to the podcast sponsor, Pearls. Um, we're going to start doing this uh, sort of at least once an episode if we can. Um, and Unless, you know, call or me forget. But um, I want to make sure we're going to do a clinical pearl of the day. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I like that. See, plays on play on words, if you if you will. I've always wanted to do a, a segment. Well, this here we a, are. There's a segment. There's a segment. Good. AJ, 
taking note. Got it down. <laughs> um, but uh, so when we're talking about the kind of withdrawal effects or discontinuation syndrome of antidepressants, um, Pearls has a very nice chart that kind of compares the likelihood of those withdrawal symptoms from SSRIs, SNRIs, and then some of the other agents, um, including TCAs, bupropion, um, mirtazapine. So most of them are going to be about the same, um, you know, likelihood of withdrawal symptoms, flu-like symptoms, basically headache, dizziness, things like that for that we think of when we think of discontinuation syndrome as well as some of the more depression-type symptoms coming back as well. Most of them are going to be pretty similar. Um, by far, though, the, the worst two are actually um, paroxetine, and uh, which you've probably heard us talk about as well. Um, not huge fans of that one. And then uh, venlafaxine is also pretty um, – pretty well known for causing some discontinuation syndromes that are a little bit more severe than some of the others. The rest of them are pretty even. The one with the least amount, and hopefully you've heard us talk about this because I know we've mentioned this, is fluoxetine. Um, fluoxetine has that seven to nine day half-life of their active metabolite norfloxetine, so it's something that uh, has almost like a built-in taper. Um, so you have the least likely chance of having discontinuation syndrome, and probably a good one if you're starting someone antidepressant and you're really worried about whether or not they're going to come back for a follow-up, might be a good one to give them. So there you go. That's your pearls of the day. First segment. Love it. After 178 episodes. That's great. <laughs> so and make sure if you're not following pearls or you know, downloading the app, um, check them out um, and uh, go to www.pearls.com slash core consult rx. Um, get your free mem- uh, log on and all that good stuff. Check out some of their charts. They got a lot of good content. Um, make sure you check out Patreon, www.patreon.com slash core consult rx. We have more traditional style lectures and, um, you know, more boring stuff, but a lot of you like boring. So, um, if you, you give hundreds of, uh, PowerPoints to download, um, if you want, and they're getting updated pretty regularly. So got a lot of Durham stuff coming, a lot of ENT stuff coming, um, over the next month. So check that out. And, uh, Anyways, thank you guys so much. That's enough plugging for now. Um, We'll see you guys in the next episode. Have a great night.